Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the What's Up webcast. My name is Kevin Lagore. I'm the product specialist for Skywatcher. Uh, happy New Year's Eve, or I guess it's New Year's for some of you, so welcome. Um, we took a break last week, obviously. That was for Christmas Eve. Hopefully you had a, a good holiday season and uh, looking forward to a whole new year with everyone here. Um, the What's Up webcast takes place every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. We cover everything from what's up into the nighttime sky to equipment to helpful tips and tricks on imaging and observing. And, of course, the last Friday of the month, we have a special guest on to talk about their specialty in the field of astronomy. And that is how we're wrapping up 2021. So... Our special guest today is Nico Carver of Nebula Photos. You've probably seen him on YouTube with all of his awesome videos. He's on Instagram. He's all over the place. He's just an all-around cool guy. And he is graciously spending his uh, New Year's Eve morning with us and joining us from the East Coast. So I'm going to go ahead and bring Nico on, and we'll get today started. If you have any questions, just throw them up in the chat, and we'll probably try to get to those towards the end um, of this, unless it's relevant to the actual particular topic at the moment but anyway hey nico good morning how you doing hey kevin i'm doing really well oh. thanks for having me on hold on just a sec this audio is go ahead and try that nico okay there Can we go me? that's All better right. <laughs> thanks for having me on kevin it's, it's uh my pleasure yeah so um we've been i actually haven't had the we've never chatted before up until this morning um so Thanks for spending your morning with us, but um, I, I'll just jump into it like we do all the other ones. Um, I ask everyone the same question is, how did you get into astronomy? So I had an interest in photography and my interest in photography was sort of getting more and more technical. Uh, I was teaching it and um, I, I had an interest in time-lapse photography because it was sort of like a technical form of photography. And I liked understanding all the settings and making them into videos. And so I had this opportunity to take a vacation to Iceland to view and photograph the Aurora Borealis. And it was a great trip. Uh, I rented like a four by four so I could go out and just sort of chase the Aurora. And I was amazed by not only the Aurora and taking photographs of it and, and what I could see there, but just how much I enjoyed taking photos at night of the night sky and meeting other people at these sites. Uh, the, many who had been doing this kind of thing for a long time and could share tips with me. So it was sort of like my first star party experience was in Iceland shooting the Aurora. And then when I came back, uh, I wanted to continue doing it, but I lived in a light polluted area, didn't know really how so I started just sort of planning trips around dark sky sites and shooting the Milky Way. And that was a really good way to get started. It wasn't until two years later in 2016 that I found out about deep sky and that people were doing it from their backyards. And so I bought an AstroTrack, which is a UK tracker. Um, that's a little bit different design because you have to rewind it. Uh, it's not like the star adventurer where it can just go all night. Um, but it was it was a good introduction to starting with tracked deep sky. And on the very first night, I could see color in the Orion Nebula. And so I was just hooked at that point and just sort of went down the rabbit hole, buying more and more gear and telescopes and equatorial mounts. And then it wasn't until I think two years in that I, I decided I had sort of a background in video 
And so I would start uploading videos to YouTube about what I was learning. That's awesome. I, I'm kind of jealous that you started out doing that with the Aurora. I have yet to see those, but it's just like, yeah, I'll, I'll start there. It's like right. the bar is so high at that point. Um, but yeah, that's it's, cool. it's amazing how good my first astrophoto is because it's the Aurora. You know, it's like, yeah. that's just such a cool photo. Even if you just get like a cell phone shot of it, it's still amazing because it's just, yeah. it takes over the whole sky with all those colors. So it's it's it was a really cool introduction. So where, um, you know, we've had other YouTubers on like Trevor uh, from Astro Backyard and Dylan. Um, where, at what point did you feel like, hey, I'm going to shift from what I'm doing imaging wise, which is already difficult enough as it is, and then shift over to doing YouTube as well? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. If I look back at my first video, it was just like, unboxing a camera and I have no I, I, I have no memory of why I did that but then I, I think I then waited about six months and looked at like the numbers and saw oh wow 3,000 people have watched this weird little video of me unboxing a camera and that gave me some encouragement to just do more so then my second video was a lot more ambitious and I thought I'm going to show off my whole setup and explain every piece and just do it in this sort of uh, teacherly way because I at the time I was um teaching Photoshop and stuff like that full time. And so I thought I can do this. And uh, yeah, from there, it's just sort of been looking at the comments and seeing what people want to learn next. So uh, someone suggested, I want to see you shoot Orion Nebula with a basic DSLR from start to finish. And so I made that video and that one got even more popular. And then it's just sort of spiraled from there. I think what's kind of cool about your approach to a lot of these videos is you do take kind of an, not that everyone else doesn't have an educational side to it, but you kind of dive into not only it taking people along with you, but you kind of divulge the, not the secrets of it, but you kind of divulge the information of here's the reality and here's what this means. And it's, you know, you dive into the nitty gritty that that information is crucial, especially for like a beginner who's getting started where it's not less like here, I took this awesome picture, which is awesome. Everyone likes that. But, you know, to someone getting started, it, it, I remember when I was trying to get started in astrophotography, it seemed like this massive uphill battle that wasn't obtainable. But then to have someone show you, it's like, here's some little things to help you get started to where you can get a you know a 10 second picture of orion or something like that so your approach is kind of unique in the fact that you do take the time to really get into you know what is aperture you know what is this and what is that and i can understand where that's probably been very helpful for a lot of people yeah pretty early on i decided you know if you're coming to astrophotography as someone new to it it can be very overwhelming with all of the terminology and all of the not just the technique of doing it, which is hard enough, but all of sort of the background you might need in just basic photography terms to understand what people are talking about when they say you want a faster F ratio and what does it mean to be faster or brighter or something like that. And all these things sort of need explanation uh, to understand why people are suggesting what they're suggesting. Mm. Um, and I, I feel like that's sometimes missing is like, okay, I can tell you, uh, you're going to, you know, have better results if you shoot untracked at F2 rather than F8. 
but why? Um, and so I'm, 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 with all my videos, I'm trying to sort of put in all of the explanations as well as the technique. And it's, it's hard because that makes the videos sometimes really long. So people need patience to sort of take it all in. Um, but I think that as we were talking about right before this video started, astrophotography is a hobby where you need that patience. Um, it's not something that's just going to come really naturally because it's so technical. Yeah. I have a lot of uh, customers who've called in, particularly with like Star Adventure and stuff like that, where it's like, oh, hey, I'm a professional photographer, so I'm going to do this. And it's it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and I tell them a lot of times that the only thing that has anything to do with you being a, a wedding photographer and astrophotography is your camera. And that's pretty much it. All the rest of the rules change. And that's also one thing that I've seen with a lot of people that are new to this is, you know, they go online, they go on form websites and it sh they think, oh, A plus B should equal C. And if I just do all these things that these people are doing, I should be able to take all these crazy images too. It's like, that's not the point. So patience is a huge factor in astrophotography. And I know there's a lot of people that try to get around it, but it's, you're, you're literally taking images of time so you're going to need to put time into it anyway so yeah and, and um a lot of people you know ask me about like the art versus science debate with astrophotography and one way in which i think astrophotography is sort of scientific is it helps to sort of follow the scientific method of like running experiments with your gear um and it will really benefit you as an astrophotographer to actually put in that work to actually try out different things and see for yourself what works best rather than just relying on what I say or what some random person on the internet says. Yeah. Cause that's um, one of the nice thing about modern technology being digital is okay. If your five minute shot totally sucked, you can just delete that. It's not like you just wasted five minutes and you, you know, blew a roll of film or something like that. Like it used to be, it, oh, it's, you know, there's that learning curve, but it does give you that, you know, level of experimentation, which is nice. And I've been to a lot of um, imaging conferences as well. And you see all these speakers and a lot of them are up there because they did experiment with things and they tried new things and they, they're sharing what worked for them. So that's probably a pretty good word of encouragement for people that, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, actually experiment with stuff because you never know what you might find, you know, that works for you. So. Yeah. And the, the one thing I'd say about your comment about the going from normal photography to astrophotography, the one other place I found it's useful is I knew Photoshop really well coming mm -hmm. into this and just knowing how to use those software programs, even if it's in a different context, can really help accelerate your, your astrophotography because so much of it is processing. Yeah, no, and that's that was my learning curve because I wasn't a software person either. So I had to kind of learn all of that. And over time you pick it up, but yeah, that's a... I find that this newer generation of astrophotographer that's coming into play, a lot of them are much more familiar right out of the gate with, you know, computer technology. So it helps quite a bit make these images even more, you know, impressive or less time is involved to get to that point. Now, it seems like, um, is there, um, any type of imaging that you like to do or, uh, I know you like to do it all, but what I've seen a lot of your work lately is these really long, very deep, uh, 
wide exposures, which I think are awesome. But I didn't know if that was your thing at the moment or if it's just kind of what do you how do you pick your what you're going to go after? Yeah, I mean, I sometimes I embark on these huge projects. So like I recently finished uh, working on 24 panels in Cygnus, which was something like 180 plus hours over four years. And once you finish a project like that, you sort of need to put it aside for a while. So even though I have plans to like keep expanding it, I might take a year break from it um, mm -hmm. and just work on other stuff because you put so much time and energy into it. You sort of just don't want to look at it for a while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I really like the big projects. Um, I, I like the idea of, you know, coming back to things year after year and with new perspective and new techniques to add to it. The, the challenge with those, I guess, is, you know, I'm a gearhead, so I'm always wanting to like update my gear. But if you're working on a big multi-year mosaic, it works better if you stick with the same gear, of course. Uh, so you can just keep expanding out. Um, the, the other thing that I really like is just uh, working with DSLRs and mirrorless cameras and camera lenses. And I, I really enjoy sort of the challenge of working with camera lenses because they, they are sometimes harder than telescopes because you're there's different challenges with them and, and uh, it's and, and wide field, a lot of people think is going to be a lot easier, but to make a wide field image look really good and deal with sky gradients and all of that, it's actually, it's, it's its own challenge, just like planetary imaging is its own challenge. So I think whatever sort of niche you choose in your sort of astrophotography uh, interest, there's going to be unique challenges to it. Yeah, no, that's, um, it's and it's never change it's never ending um i know you were saying a little bit earlier that you know before we jumped on here that one of the big things that you get questions on or one of the big things that you see is that you find a lot of people uh end up changing their equipment almost too quickly where they get into it they get this stuff they go through a little stint with it and then they want to switch it and at that point you're you don't have time for you to to actually adapt to whatever your equipment is at that point, which can make things really difficult. So yeah, and I early on I had a Skywatcher uh, a semi apo doublet. Um, the I don't know what they call it now. The Evo Star is it still called that? Yeah, Evo yeah, Stars. The ADED, and it was uh it was great. I had the flattener for it. I, I first used it with my DSLR, and then I got a ZWO ASI sixteen hundred and put that on there. But then, like, within two images with the ZWO, I decided I need a different telescope and sold the, the EvoStar. But I sort of regret that because I, I think that I was still in that stage where I just thought that throwing money at different things would improve my astrophotography. Um, and it's, it's really about just, you know, your own vision for an image and, you know, trying to do something different, trying a different technique that's going to really accelerate you not not so much buying just the latest and greatest gear like i'm amazed at what you can do with a dslr still it doesn't it doesn't even have to be the newest dslr it could be a six-year-old one a 10-year-old one and it's still if you're under the right sky with the right uh optics it's amazing what you can pull out well you that actually brings up um you do a lot of work with other youtubers and influencers i hate that term but for lack of a better term um where you you know you worked with trevor and did a video where you guys had a super basic out of the box canon i don't know which version it was but it was a fairly 
recent version, but it was very um, lower budget camera there. And you guys, I couldn't believe the the shot that you got with the um, the witch head in it and stuff like that. But it just shows that you know you give someone who's got experience and you can actually make some pretty. You don't need to go top dollar on everything to actually get some really amazing stuff. Yeah, we we picked that camera because it we we looked up what's the best selling DSLR on Amazon or something, and it was the cheapest Canon camera, of course. Uh, so it was the Canon T7, and so we thought, well, that's going to be a good one just to get a lot of new people into this because if it's the best selling, maybe a lot of people have that camera already. So that's mm-hmm. why we picked that one, um, and then we both used the Star Adventurer. Um, so. It's 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 taking it from what I would consider really basic is just put that camera with the kit lens on a tripod. It's taking it one step above that by adding the star tracker. But I think even then, it's funny that we both went after sort of a challenging object in the witch head because I think that really, as you said, sort of proves the point that like you can do pretty cool things with um, basic gear uh if you if you know what you're doing with it um i've seen people do giant mosaics of like the dust and cepheus with that same camera um and and if you if you are under a dark sky and and put in the time you can just really bring out a an amazing image i mean we limited that one to one night but if we had if we had done multiple nights on the witch head it could have been even better Mm mm-hmm no, and that's, I think it's just a testament to showing how good we have it now as, you know, amateur astronomers is, you know, and you have, I know you said you had a Canon EOS RA before this, but, you know, you even have these big multi-billion dollar companies who are kind of, you know, tilting their hat, if they would, to our little, you know, community. Um, so it it is something that I see a lot of uh especially with the pandemic, a ton of people got into it, but you know, it's becoming big enough to where modest stuff can get you some really nice, you don't need to spend this big fortune on stuff. Like you see a lot of places you can. And as you adapt, you know, your equipment improves as well, but you can get a lot of good stuff with a very minor investment um, on the equipment there. So definitely Uh, there's a question in here that came up and it's kind of relevant to what we're talking about here. Um, this is from Rob B. Um, is there such a thing as a 20 millimeter wide angle astro lens? Um, I have my answer, but I would be curious you messing with a lot of lenses, what you have found. So my approach to testing lenses is I started with the, the, um, widest, uh, focal length. Like I started with fisheye lenses and then I moved up to 14, so 20 is probably my next one, and I want to test a bunch of lenses. Um, in terms of an astro lens, not in the sense that like Ascar is now making astro lenses specifically for astrophotography, but in the sense of it being good in, in rendering a star field, definitely. Like I think um, the Sigma art lenses are really well regarded in that sense. And I think Sigma knows that too. Um, and they're thinking about the performance on star fields. Um, but they're very expensive. So if you want to look at more budget options, um, I don't know about a 20 millimeter, but I th- the Rokinon and then they also go by Samyang um, lenses are often very good too. Yeah, I know they make a 24. As with, and I know you'll know this, Nico, as 
a lot of uh, lenses, you know, no astrophot- no lens for a camera is specifically designed to render a star field well at its widest aperture. They're just, you know, the, the edges are going to look like trash um, because of such an extreme F ratio. But the advantage of having something like a prime lens, like a 20, it's, okay, it's natively F1.4, so the stars at the edge are going to look like garbage. But it gives you the ability to then drop that down to F2 or 2.8 or whatever, um, and you'll get this really crisp pinpoints at the edge at that point, as opposed to starting with a lens that's maybe 2.8 and then having to drop down to F4 to get sharp images, you know, going to those prime lenses and being able to actually be sharp at 2.8 and get that speed out of it is an advantage. And I have a friend of mine who has a Sigma 20 art lens and every image I see off of that thing, especially when it's paired with a full frame is just majorly impressive. Cool. But yeah, yeah, they are what you just said about stopping down the lens. That's the main thing. Like I want to test when I do these lens tests is let's see what the stars look like in the center and in the corners at every F ratio from wide open down to F 5.6, because Mm -hmm. some will really clean up and improve a lot, just stopping it down like one stop while others, you don't see that much improvement until you stop it down to F four or F 5.6, at which point it's not really a fast lens anymore. So Mm -hmm. I know both of you and myself have fallen in love with the Canon RF 85 1.2, which is, it better be good for what they charge right. for that lens. But I mean, even that lens, you probably have to bring down to F2 for it to be nice at the edge. Yeah. I mean, at, at one, I have shot it a bit at 1.2, but yeah, if you really zoom in, you'll see in the corners, the stars are not round. They're quite yeah. elongated. Yeah. That's a, that lens was made to make everything in the middle look great and everything else disappear at F1.2 right. was what that lens was made to do. So um, someone asked on this is probably a good segue out of it. Um, there's a couple questions here that I think we'll save to the end, but one here, um, can you do astrophotography with a cell phone? Um, I don't know if you've messed with it much, but you know, with telescope adapters for phones now and you know, some of these modern cell phones, you could probably do some pretty basic, especially on a tracked system, you know, you could get some nice shots of the Orion Nebula. I don't know if you have any experience with that though. I do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's one really cool approach is to use, uh, a focal. So basically use an eyepiece and attach the smartphone with one of those clamps. And it's, it, it works pretty well, actually, especially like on the planets and on the bright DSOs. Um, the other approach is Milky Way with cell phones, and they're actually getting good enough that you can do Milky Way photography with a cell with a wide angle lens on a cell phone. I did it with a barn door tracker and my cell phone, and I was pretty impressed by the results. I did I did I stacked a bunch of thirty second exposures. The other big sort of advancement in cell phone te- camera technology that I'm impressed by is a lot of them shoot raw now, so you can shoot raw. Uh, on your cell phone, which I think does make a little difference over just shooting JPEGs. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're going to process and stack and all that. Yep. But um, I that was another thing where I think we'll probably see as phones become better and better um, and more and more can be done with that. But um, I've seen it where some nice images are already coming from a cell phone, but I wouldn't be surprised moving further into the future where that's going to become even better for you know, as point and shoots are basically disappearing, 
um, that phones will be able to do, you know, actual astrophotography, especially nightscape work will be pretty interesting. Yeah, I saw that uh, Sony's latest cell phone, it's like, it's really expensive, so I haven't really even considered buying it yet. I think it's a $2,000 phone, but they put their one of their latest point and shoot sensors into the phone. So they put a one inch sensor into the phone and I'm like, okay, that's where we're headed. And that's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. That's soon. You're going to be able to adapt like your camera lenses to this thing and just, you know, there you go. Uh, Let me see. I want to make sure we have anything relevant in this particular thing. I think we're, I'll just save these other ones for the, the end of it. But, um, uh, where do you see astrophotography going in the next few years? Obviously, it's like you blink and there's a new camera out and stuff like that. But uh, I didn't know from your perspective where you see a lot of that going. Um, I mean, probably. So one of the things I see is that we now have full frame mono CMOS sensors that are really good. Like the I think you said you have the. Um the one from ZWO that's really good. Uh, I'm forgetting the name. Oh, of the 6200 is the 6200. Yeah. But there's not actually that many telescope options that work really well with full frame. A lot of mm-hmm. the flatteners and uh, flattener reducers have been optimized for the crop sensor. Cause that's what everyone was using. So I wonder if we're going to see more of like the high end optics designed for full frame. Now that the cameras uh, the full frame sensor cameras have come down in price so much. Um, the other thing I'm interested in is the, we saw that ZWO, Pegasus and Sharpstar, I think all are going to release a harmonic drive mounts this spring. And I wonder if that's going to really take off or if people are going to see the limitations of that with the huge, you know, periodic error curve and be, realize it's not for everyone. So I'm, I'm hoping to try one of those harmonic drive mounts and see, uh, what I can see about it because it's, it's definitely a change. Um, it's, it's, it's a different design than your typical equatorial mount. Yeah. It's, um, let's see, breaking that apart real quick. Um, as far as full frame goes. Yeah. I, I think us as manufacturers need to approach things with the, the idea of full frame being a, um, a much bigger presence you know you can do obviously most full frame options right now are at least a thousand dollars with like a canon rp or a sony you know alpha mirrorless um but yeah that that full frame i mean the 6200 we have that's four grand for one of those which is still a fair amount of money but it used to cost like six or eight thousand dollars for <laughs> something like s big or fli or something like that um but yeah, it's um, it's definitely becoming a thing where most of the time, if you say anything under you know four thirds, that's a tiny sensor by today's standards. So right. you know, I have a set of you know really nice chroma inch and a quarter filters, and it's really hard to find a camera now that is good enough to utilize something like that now because there's not a lot of interest on chips that small anymore. So, um. It, it'll be interesting as we we already have seen it with the the IMX 571 which is the ZWO 2600 and I think you have the QHY equivalent um yeah. whatever the naming I the 268 yeah <laughs> 268 um and then you have like the QHY 600 and the 6200s 
Um, and then we're probably going to see medium format start to come into play here. But yeah, as a manufacturer of telescopes, we're going to have to approach that more with the idea that full frame is going to have to be the benchmark rather than crop sensor. I don't think that's happened yet. Obviously, to get to anywhere in the full frame market right now is quite an investment, but sure. it's I don't think we're that far out. Probably in the time it takes to basically design a telescope and bring it to market, we will have more affordable full frames, especially if QHY and ZWO have anything to do about it. So, yeah. Um, and then what you mentioned about the the uh, oh harmonic, harmonic drive. drives, yeah, um, yeah, that's going to be interesting too. I know that uh, is something I'm interested in seeing. Um, I have not played with a harmonic drive. But I know they have their pluses and minuses. Pluses being that they're a lot smaller um, and you get a lot out of a tiny little package. Um, minuses being they have massive periodic error. But that should be something you can guide out. But it's giving you that, that really small travel footprint that I think a lot of people are looking for. So that'll be interesting to see as those start to come to the market how that's adopted um, but everything's going to have its pluses and minuses. You know, you've got the harmonic drives. You have R mounts. I know everyone's talked about direct drive. Direct drive has its own challenge because it has to be immaculately balanced um, at that point. But it, it'll it's just kind of cool to see all this new technology at the disposal at this point. So it'll be interesting over the next five years to see where all of that evolves um at that point and and one other thing i think is sort of cool about the harmonic drive mounts i just thought of is that in addition to travel mounts they make it more accessible to maybe people that can't physically lift the mount head mm -hmm. if it's like 50 pounds you know what i mean so but and then the advantage of course over just a star tracker is that it's it's going to move the mount in declination too and so you can uh go to and and drizzle and i mean uh dither and all of that kind of stuff so mm -hmm. i think it's pretty interesting yep and of course with all that new equipment comes nights and nights and nights of clouds so yes. you know so <laughs> yeah here we've been i think it's it's been a month at least since i've been out i'm hoping mm -hmm. maybe monday night it might be clear um but i was i was really hoping you know over over the holidays i could get some clear nights but no luck Yep, I really want to get a shot of James Webb um, yeah. track through a star field because it's sitting in the constellation Orion right now. So, and it's like fifteenth magnitude, which should be easy mm -hmm. within a an average telescope setup. But I haven't had the weather anywhere to be able to do it. So, so we'll see how that uh, works out. But um, for someone getting started in astrophotography, is there anything that you would, or, well, here, I'll backtrack on that because what you don't just do astrophotography, you do videos about visual work as well. Um, do you find, do you still enjoy doing the visual stuff as well? Or do you, um, do you kind of balance it or? I'm more in astrophotography. I mean, I visual, I, I just don't really have the skies for it. I mean, I shouldn't say that. I could I could travel with a visual setup, but usually when I'm driving in the car, I'm just focused on it's a clear night. I got to shoot. I got to mm -hmm. photograph things. Um, Especially if you're doing these big projects like you like to do. Exactly. And I also don't really have the car to support like a big telescope. I have a sedan. And what I find with the visual people is they often have the vehicles where they can take out like a big 20 inch or 24 inch daub out of their car and they bring that to the dark site. 
Um, I did get to go to to Okitex, uh this fall, and so that was a treat. It's always uh, really fun to like go somewhere where there's a lot of cool visual observers and see what their whole setups look like because they're you know they're just as inventive as the astrophotographers in experimenting and coming up with these really unique visual setups um, that are just so amazing. Um, like like roboticizing it and doing all this really cool stuff with their with their telescopes. Um, but in terms of my YouTube channel, the the main thing that I sort of think there's a crossover on my channel between visual and astrophotography is I still think it's useful to learn star hopping and and looking at charts and things like that because, you know, if I I'm really into like Plan A, Plan B, and so if you if your Plan A is everything's going to be automated, plate solving is going to work, what happens if that doesn't work? You need a plan B. And I think having that background and being able to find things in the night sky without all the technology is really useful. No, and I, that's actually a good, uh, very good point. Cause that's how I learned. And that's how I try to, you know, anybody who asks me how to get started, I try to teach them in that way as well. And it's, it does happen. I've seen it happen time and time again, where I've had friends who have, whether it's visual or imaging, you have all this expensive stuff out there and, you know, something goes wrong and the tracking or whatever point doesn't work. And then they're just sitting there and your whole night's just lost. And yeah, just having, taking some time to actually understand what you're doing um, is a big deal because then, you know, if you do know the night sky and it's like, Hey, I'm going to go slew to Andromeda. And then it's like, that is clearly not, andromeda so having that understanding of though i know a lot of people rely on go-to systems but having that fundamental understanding of the sky will tell you when something maybe is not actually working and that happens a lot more than i think people think it does so that's a that i that's a great point actually that i didn't even think to discuss but thanks for bringing that up so yeah and i think it 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 also is nice that so many people are starting with star trackers now because you have to manually point those there's no go-to system in them so um it's a it's a cool way for people to really learn how to find things without uh without the go-to and uh plate solving and all of that um the 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 reason of course is is because a star tracker can, can only move in right ascension so you you, you can't actually go to with it because it doesn't have that second set of motors yeah no and that's um i think there's something at least for me I, i'm constantly on the computer i know you are everyone is you're attached to social media it's your brain is constantly moving all the time with all this stimulus going on so there's there's something to be said to kind of put all that to the side especially when you're in a dark sky site and i'm sure you do it once everything's kind of running where you just kind of sit back and just kind of basically marinate in what you're seeing in front of you and it's being able to just kind of you know go back to simply being like okay there's you know andromeda there's the pleiades and kind of almost bringing it back to like grassroots where it's like this is what centuries of people before us have done where it's like the story of you know orion and the story of the pleiades and all this other stuff it's you know you're kind of bringing it back to what it's truly about deep down and 